Welcome to The Rock Church, a vibrant, enthusiastic, edgy church meeting in West Bridgeford, Nottingham. You can find out more about us by visiting the-rock.org.uk. We hope you were blessed by this message. another word. So I'm going to invite Joseph. He's going to recap from last week. It's the second part of his teaching series on the Sabbath. I'm so excited for us as a church around this because I don't think we ever just stop and be. Be is the word for our season this year. And when we be and we spend time with God and we just delight in him and he in us, amazing things can happen. So come on, Joss, let's get you up for your second part. Give a big round of applause. Thank you very much. Good morning. It's fantastic to be with you all again. Just all the uh, conversation about knees, Rob. I was managed to. I'm sort of walking with a bit of a limp, but it was all self-inflicted. I was in the hills yesterday and did a bit too much, I think. But there we are. I think it's just age. Never mind. Um, <clears throat> so last week. Um, we began our series on Sabbath. And um, can anyone remember the sort of two phrases, be and be free? Exactly. Uh, we said that there was a principle, there was a principle of Sabbath that predated the law, that it was there from the very beginning, that God created the world, and then on the seventh day he rested. We then see it in the Ten Commandments, the rules of life, if you like. And then we see it echoed throughout the entire scripture. And then we said that even in Hebrews, it talks about the fact that our end, our, the thing that we're looking forward to is entering into his Sabbath rest. So we have it in the beginning and we have it at the very end. And Sabbath is an eternal principle. Um, <clears throat> we talked about the fact that we Sabbath because we are free to Sabbath. Because we're no longer slaves. We looked at this passage that was in Deuteronomy 5 and the, the, um, when they're talking about Sabbath day and keeping it holy because you were once slaves in Egypt, but now you're free. And we said and that God had rescued them with his strong right hand and his outstretched arm. And we said the same way, we have that same story, that we were slaves to the world, we were slaves to sin, we were slaves to ourselves, and that Jesus has freed us with his outstretched arm so that we can enjoy his rest. <clears throat> I think I said uh, last week that I preach and, uh, uh, preached on Sabbath a, a month or two back in the evening service, and that sort, sort of kicked it off a little bit. Uh, and the reason I'm sort of passionate about Sabbath was it really came out of my own failing to Sabbath and failing to have a good spiritual and emotional healthy life. Um, and it led to me having a mental breakdown and a whole bunch of things. But on the back of that, I found this rhythm of Sabbath, and it really came from me uh, reading a book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Peter Scazzaro, and I think I've recommended that. So just if you're taking notes or you're looking for books, that's one, Ruthless, uh, Ruthless Elimination of Hurries, John Mark Comer, which he kind of wrote on the back of meeting with Peter, actually. And then um, God in My Everything is something I've been just, just about finished, actually, and that was something that Claire put, on to, uh, put me on to, and that's by uh, Ken Shingmatsu. Um, great book, and there's another great book which I've just started called Sacred Rhythms by Ruth Barton, if you're interested. <laughs> anyway, so um, 
Now, first week was be still, be free. Today, we're going to be talking about be full and be overflowing. And just a bit of a heads up for next week. Next week, we're going to be talking about taking delight. We're going to be talking about all the many different ways we can take delight. And um, in Proverbs 5, 18, 19, it says, May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. And that's one of the things we're going to be talking about next week, is taking delight in each other sexually as well. All the guys are like, All right, we'll be there, we'll, go, we'll be there. <laughs> but this week, this week we're talking about be full, be overflowing. Be full, and this is going to be a focus on the word. Be full of the word. In the beginning, anyone know where that's from? Genesis, that's right. It's a bit of a trick, actually. It's also John. Um, and so, uh, and I say that deliberately, just so you think, and remember this, that in the beginning, and in the beginnings, both the beginning of the Old Testament, the creation, but also in this thing with John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. I love the way John sort of, sort of says it one way and then says it back another way. It's just so you get the point. It's, it's to answer our own self-critic, if you understand that. That's the way, um, there's a bit of an aside this, but that's the way John writes quite a lot of things, actually. So he goes things like, through him, all things were made. And you go, what? Nothing was made without him. And so he answers it almost. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. <laughs> it's, it's quite clever, really. Um, so anyway, everything was made through Jesus. And so we have Jesus in the very beginning, but Jesus as the word. God spoke and. And we have this creating story, this story of how the whole universe took on form. And Jesus was at the very center of it. He was the word in the beginning. Now, the word and Jesus are synonymous with one another. They are intrinsically linked. Jesus isn't just this. No, that would be wrong. But he is also somehow this. In some mystery, Jesus embodies the word. And so it's interesting when we then think about the word and think about Jesus, that he is this, this idea, that he is the word. And then we think about what he says about the word. Matthew 4.4, 4, Jesus answered, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He said in John 6, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. We have this dance between Jesus is the word, he's the bread, we eat bread, we eat him, but we don't live on bread alone, we live on the word. But there's this interplay, are you seeing this sort of connection that we eat and feast on Jesus by eating and feasting on this. I love this verse in Jeremiah 15, 16. It says, when your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. For I bear your name, Lord God Almighty. Peter said that we are like newborn babies. 
And we long for pure milk of the word, so that by it we may grow in respect to salvation. That's a pretty interesting thing, isn't it? We don't grow, we don't increase our salvation. We grow in respect of it. So as in, we're saved, we have our salvation. But we grow in respect to that salvation with the pure milk of the word. So here's a little... um, Here's a little question. Who here, who here has read, I don't know, an entire book of the Bible? One of the Gospels or one of the Epistles or maybe all of Jesus. Hands up if you've read one, at least one entire book. One entire book of the Bible. Most people, pretty much everybody. Yeah, good. Okay, what about, I don't know, two or three books at least? Hands up. Great. Yeah, good number, good number. Okay, what about the entire New Testament, the whole thing. Yeah, good number still. Okay, what about the entire Bible, including all the little weird minor prophets with funny names? <laughs> Zephaniah? Obadiah? You sure? Cool, so good few hands up still. I'd say that's like a dozen hands, maybe a bit more. Okay, cool. Who's read it, I don't know, at least 10 times all the way through? One, half a dozen maybe. Cool, okay, great. But not everyone, right? Not everyone's read it all. Not everyone's read the New Testament. Not everyone's read it more than once probably then. Who here knows the story of Romeo and Juliet? Yeah, you know the story? Does everybody know? Does anyone not know the story of Romeo and Juliet? Two. Okay. Guys, help them out after. That's, um, I feel like, a significant part of life that you probably, like, just general film plots, film, film, film plots, film plots, and other things sort of come from that. Um, And so most people say, yeah, I know the story of Romeo and Juliet. So who's fighting? Who's fighting? Romeo and Juliet. Well, who's at war? Montagues and Capulets, yeah. And where did Romeo and Juliet meet? At a party. You've watched the film, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but where did they meet, yeah? He's kind of right, yeah. At a ball, yeah. Whose ball? Yep. And why did they go to the ball? And who, not you, Dan. <laughs> and who, and who, whose idea was it to go? Anyone? It's best mate. Does anyone know what his best mate was called? Lucutia. Has everyone got the answers to all of these, or are you kind of like, oh, I'm glad somebody knows. I'm glad he hasn't asking me. <laughs> and so, yeah, they go to this party, Romeo and Juliet meet, and... Uh, Romeo's not supposed to be there either. They're rivals. They've just sort of gate-crashed. And um, uh, they go, and then it all kicks off, and um, there's a guy called um, Tybalt, who's actually the cousin of Juliet, and uh, he goes to seek revenge, and, 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 and it all kicks off. And they're supposed to get in this fight, and he's trying to provoke this fight. But because now Romeo's fallen for Juliet, he doesn't want to now fight Tybalt because he now sees him as potential family. So um, 
Mercutio gets upset about the fact that he's not taking up and wears his honor and all that, and Mercutio ends up dying um, and getting stabbed, actually, and die in place. And then the story goes on, and um, they go to get married, and then they, uh, well, there's a whole bunch of the story. But um, my point is, we just covered, like, the first couple of chapters. And actually, we say we know a story, but when we start to really look and ask some questions, we maybe don't know as much as we think, right? <laughs> and that's because probably we've never read or reread or whatever the play. I would say sometimes it's a little bit the same with this. That we say, oh yeah, I, I know the gospel. I know, I know it. But actually, we don't really know any of the detail. We don't really know the ins and outs of the story and what makes the story. We know some of the headlines. Oh, yeah, it's about you know, these two star-crossed lovers <laughs> who fall in love or whatever. But, and that's what I think I'm interested in. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. My question would be, how if we don't know what his commands are? So today, we're thinking about as part of Sabbath, we can stop and we can be filled. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the step of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his Lord day and night. This is in Psalm 1. That person, listen to this, that person is like uh, a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do, it prospers. And why does it prosper? Because they meditate on the law. Isn't that amazing? Knowing this, knowing this, being full of his word, leads to a life that prospers. Do you think of that when you're thinking about how am I going to see my life prosper? Oh, I need to make sure I read and feed on his word. It's not the first thing that comes into my mind, I must be honest. <laughs> I'm thinking, right, prosper, yeah, come on, I've got to have blessed life. I've got to you know, make sure I go to the gym, I've got to work hard, make money, I've got to do the, you know, have good friends, etc. My first line of thought isn't, oh, I need to be full of his word. But that's the truth. That's the truth. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, this is Philippians 4, I love this. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think, or King James, meditate on such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. Think about these things. Meditate on this. What is pure, is lovely, is right, is just. Again. Where do we find those things to meditate on? But in here. Certainly not on Netflix, <laughs> which, you know, um, <clears throat> I think is, is a lot easier. I don't know about you. Who finds watching Netflix a bit easier than reading their Bible sometimes? You know, maybe just me. You guys are way more holy than I am. You guys should come and preach, maybe. Um, I'm, uh, I'll just be the first to say I definitely find watching Netflix, especially when I've had a long day and everything else or, you know, other stuff, just going and just thinking, you know, I just want to sit down and just do that. <laughs> But that isn't how I'm going to meditate on what's good and lovely. There's a little um, 
rebuttal in, uh, in uh, Hebrews. I always read this, I'm like, well. Oh. It says, for by this time you ought to be teachers. You have need again of someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. They just don't read it, so they don't know what they're on about. For he is an infant, but solid food is for the mature, because, um, <clears throat> who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. They have practiced because of the word of righteousness. They've been able to have practice their senses to be able to distinguish and discern between good and evil, right and wrong. I get into some spats on uh, social media every now and again. Anyone who sort of uh, follows me on Instagram or anything else will have seen the fireworks every, every, every so often. And that's often, and, and it's almost 99% of the time with Christians. Um, but it's often because um, I'll be talking about something and, and, and I'll be saying, oh, this isn't very good, or this is right, or this is wrong, or whatever. And, and it explodes. And what I figure out a lot of the time is it's not coming from people who have any sort of desire or any sort of wealth of the word of God in them. They're not able to discern right and wrong. When you're talking about certain elements of sexuality and gender and other things, which are just really simple things, biblically, to talk about, they can really fire up some, some interesting debates. But because those people haven't had the word of righteousness taking real root in their hearts and minds and souls, and so you end up not being able to discern. And, uh, yeah, if you want to see some of those fireworks, uh, give me a follow, and um, you can join in. <laughs> throw, in throw, your, throw your five penneth in. Um, <clears throat> we're going to have to spend a little time in Ephesians. Ephesians 6. The, um, it's where we uh, come across this idea of the armor of God. And uh, if you've got a Bible, it's in uh, Ephesians 6, and it's sort of verse 10 onwards. Um, but I'll join in about verse 13. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then. With the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes with the gospel of peace. In addition, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. That sounds pretty cool, doesn't it? <clears throat> and then take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So the shield, I'm going to focus on the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The shield of faith. So they have the thing, the defense and offense, right? Shield, sword, shield, sword. Defense and offense. For those who know the verse, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. So this shield of faith, which we're able to extinguish and see the, the fiery, they're not just any old darts. The devil's a scumbag. He's shooting fiery darts. You know, it's like something out of some like epic war film. They're fiery darts flying in. And that's the enemy's way. And our shield that we have, our shield of faith, is made bigger by knowing the word of God. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. So when, we, when we're looking to extinguish the darts that the enemy fires at us, it's that shield of faith. And when it comes to attack, offense, it's the word of God. Does anyone ever feel like they're in a battle? Like the, the world is a battlefield? I know I feel like that regularly. That the world's a battlefield. And so how can you defend an attack 
without a shield or a sword. Not, it's not, we're not going to fare very well, are we? Now, we've got the helmet of salvation. So you're, you know, the breastplate of righteousness. So you're not going down and out, but it ain't going to be a good trip. It's going to be a rough ride, isn't it? If we've got no shield of faith and we haven't got the, word, the sword of the Spirit. I know when it comes to situations of life, just everyday things, that it's the word of God which helps and guides me. And I know there's times when I've not been full. I, in fact, I've alluded to them and talked about them already. The times in my life when I've failed and failed miserably, it's often been times when I've not been reading my word. It's often been times when I've, I've maybe just been reading purely to prepare a message, but actually I've not been reading and feeding on Jesus as the bread of life. I haven't been just trying to get to know my father better. I've just been kind of preparing for a message or whatever. And so when you get to know the Bible, you're then able to wield it like a sword or use it as a shield. When I'm not too sure what I need to do or where, you know, or, or, or whatever, and I'm not sure about the next thing to do, I'm thinking, well, the word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. When I'm worried about opposition, I may be receiving in the workplace or, uh, you know, it might be some contention you've got with uh, a friend, colleague, or whatever. And you feel like you're up against it. Then you, you, you sort of remember that no weapon fashioned against you will prosper. And you're not fighting against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and against the rules of darts of the world. You know, you, these things come up when I'm facing f- sickness and fear. I know by his stripes I'm healed. When I'm wondering whether or not um, I should carry on doing the things I feel called to or if I've not, I've messed up one too many times. I know that the good work he started in me, he will carry on into completion. When life seems to be crumbling around us, when we're not too sure if we've, like somebody said earlier, that they trusted in God. I think somebody said that they'd been trusting in God for something and it hadn't been working out. I can't remember who was talking about that earlier. Then we remember that those who trust in the Lord will never be put to shame. When we're wondering what we should do whether or not we should take this job or look at this thing or do this thing or whatever. How do we make those choices? Well, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the things will be added to you. When the devil whispers in your ear that you can't, you failed, then we remind him that God uses the foolish things to shame the wise. That God doesn't look at the outward appearance, but he looks at the heart. That no matter what, I'm a new creation in Christ. That his mercies are new every morning. And who the sun sets free is free indeed. To mishmash mega medley about six different verses. But they come out of a they come out of you when you're squeezed, what's in you comes out, right? And so when you if you're full of the word, when you squeeze, those are the things that will rise in you to push back as defense or as offense. And when we quote scripture, because the word says, the word says, that his word won't return to him void. It won't return to him without accomplishing the tasks for which it's sent. That's a promise. You can stand that. You can bank that. Whenever you proclaim his word, it will do the tasks for which it's sent. Because it's not based on you. It's based on him. And we study, we should get to know different bits. We should get to know why certain bits of the Bible are the way they are and why it says certain things. 
Because ignorance can be a real problem as well. I mean, I've been so ignorant in my life, I probably am on a lot of things still, but it's so ignorant on certain things in the Bible, I'm like, oh, I just didn't, I had no idea about that. Romeo and Juliet, classic example again. Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? Steve's loving it. Wherefore art thou, Romeo? And we go, oh, I always thought, oh, yeah, she's, you know, the balcony scene. She's like, oh, where is he? (laughs) Where is he? Where is my love? Did you know it has nothing to do with that? At all. When she says, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? Wherefore art just sounds to us a bit like, where are they? But it's why for, or for why, art thou, Romeo? Why are you Romeo? The clues in the next line. Deny thy father, refuse thy name. Or if thou wilt not be sworn, my love, I will no longer be a Capulet. She's saying, why are you a Montague? Why are you this? Because it's going to make it hard. But for most of my life, I thought that was her saying, where is he? (laughs) Anyone else in the same boat? Right? And the Bible's the same. If we don't know scripture, sometimes we can read it on face value and think, oh, I've got that. I know what that's about. And actually, not about that at all. And I could give you some examples, but time's against me. Um, So we feast on him. We feast on his word. And when we do, we begin to know what he says about us, that he, we are the apple of his eye, and he hides us under the shadow of his wings in Psalms. We eat and we read and we eat from him, and we begin to understand that it's God's mission, that this is all about God's mission, a father to get his family back, who provides, who splits the seas, who rescues, who does things, who provides miraculously, feeds us, nurtures us, cares for us, defeats our enemies. And in Jesus, we see the same. We read about him cherishing children, aiming to spend time with the least, the lost, and the last. Not to get a photo op. This isn't somebody who's a politician who's out there just so, you know, I'm just going to go hang out with these people who I don't normally associate with, just so somebody can snap a few pictures and stick them on the gram, and then I'm off to my nice house. Jesus went and ate with people and spent time with the people who the rest of society thought were not worth a second of their time at all and would be seen dead with. Tax collectors, prostitutes, he touched and healed the unclean. And he did that for me. And he did that for you. And God demonstrates his love for us. While we're still sinners, he died for us. That's the love that we read and we get from the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that none of us would perish. And now I'm convinced that neither angels nor demons nor the present or any powers nor heights nor depths nor anything else in creation will be able to separate me from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And as he paid the ultimate price, being nailed and murdered and tortured, he cried out, forgive them. That's what our Savior cried. Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. And as his best friends denied him three times, The first thing he did when he rose again, went and found him and restored him three times. And as he met with his doubting friend who didn't know what to believe anymore, he said, here, put your hands in mine, Thomas. 
Put your hands in mine. Feel. Come close. Put your hands in my side. Feel love and see resurrection. See hope. And that's what this does. This invites us. This book invites us to put our hands in his. It invites us to draw close enough to feel the wounds of his love for us. And when we read and when we hear what he's done and who he is and all the wonderful things, you can't help but begin to overflow. We're full of him. We're full of his word. And we overflow with gratitude and worship. Because this is our God. This is our God. This is who he is. He loves us. This is our God. This is what he does. He saves us. It's just beautiful, isn't it? This is our God. And so we spend time with him. We feast on him. And we overflow with gratitude. And the thing is, if we didn't overflow with gratitude, if we didn't worship, if we didn't worship, we read in Luke that he says, I tell you, if you didn't, if I, you didn't, if you kept quiet, these stones would cry out in worship. God is so worthy of worship that if we kept quiet, even the stones would have to break out in chorus. Because all the heavens... All of creation proclaims the work of his hands according to the Psalms. His invisible qualities, his eternal power, so that no one is without excuse, according to Romans. It's wonderful, isn't he? And the amazing thing is that when we spend time with him, when we stop and Sabbath and spend time, this is only one of the things we do in Sabbath, we spend time with him. We fill and we feast. And it turns to gratitude. And gratitude, you know, is an antidote to stress and depression. That's a proven fact. That's just scientifically an absolute. And we read things like Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not lack anything. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. And even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup. It overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will sit and dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Isn't he good? My cup, it overflows. As we spend time thinking, meditating on his word, chewing on his word, as we attain time in his presence, then we find that actually our cup overflows. 
It's not like we're putting effort in. Actually, everything starts coming back. I wonder if the worship team can... Sean was gone. I was looking for him earlier. I was trying to eyeball him. I'm like, he's not in the room. I don't know where he's gone. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus went um, up the mountainside often to pray. He withdrew. He spent time in different spots and places, but he often had these same sort of ideas up a mountainside on his own, doing something. In Matthew, it says, when you pray, go into your room, close the door behind you. What the, pray to the Father who is unseen and don't let anyone else see you. But what really struck me was this idea that when, <clears throat> when we're doing these things on a Sabbath, Jesus seemed to have a, a rhythm and a th- things he liked to do. And so my encouragement to you would be to, not every Sabbath, but just on some more, or maybe you wonder every time, is to make space, choose a place, and pick a posture. Because we're humans, we're, we're flesh and blood. And what we do on the outside is often important for what's going on inside. Um, Claire encouraged us to kneel earlier, and I couldn't because my bust my knee. <laughs> but still... Our posture is important. So when we meet and pray, when we worship, maybe you want to lift your hands. Maybe you've never raised your hands in worship before. International sign of surrender. International sign of pointing, worthy. You see people in the football stands when, they, when the team scores, it's just this eruption of delight. So maybe in worship, in overflowing gratitude, is something that maybe you want to... Start exploring your posture. Am I kneeling? Am I kneeling at the feet of my Savior? Have you made a space? Sabbath is your space. Choose a place. Maybe somewhere where you feel close to God. Maybe it's in a little cupboard somewhere down the bottom of the garden. For me, I like to be out in the hills. But I've got a couple of little spots where I, they, they have resonance for my soul. Sabbath, when we take time to be still, to be free, to be full, and to be overflowing, we find that it's not just a day, but it becomes a rhythm of life and a way of being in the world. And we realign ourselves every week. We realign ourselves with ourselves. We realign, realign ourselves with God, with our family with our friends, with creation and what's around us. And it sets us a rhythm for life and life to its fullest. Friends, if we really get into this, build our life on it, it's a firm foundation. Firm foundation. And if you put your trust in it, you'll never be put to shame. You'll never be shaken. 
let's worship him.